The Republican presidential field has two candidates left, and voters in New Hampshire choose today. It matters. Does Nikki Haley have enough momentum to stay in the race against Donald Trump after this week? I'm Steve Inskeep with A. Martinez, and this is Up First from NPR News. 21 soldiers were killed near Israel's border with Gaza. This is the deadliest single incident for the Israeli military since the war began, and pressure mounts for Israel to bring home hostages held by Hamas. As a mother, I'm not a politician. For me, for a mother, every day is too much time. Could Israel approve a ceasefire to bring people home? Also, the parents of a teenage school shooter are awaiting trial. Prosecutors accuse them of being negligent by giving their son access to a gun. Can parents be held responsible for their children's crimes? Stay with us. We've got all the news you need to start your day. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. Capital One offers checking accounts with no fees or minimums and no overdraft fees. That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. This message comes from NPR sponsor Homes.com. When you're home shopping as a parent, you have lots of questions about local schools. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by a dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be like that at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. The New Hampshire primary takes place today, and it's now essentially a two-person race on the Republican side. Yeah, former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley, also former governor of South Carolina, is hoping to mount a strong enough challenge against former President Trump to keep her campaign going. We do have the most partial of partial vote counts imaginable. The northern New Hampshire town of Dixville Notch traditionally counts its ballots first, opening and closing its polls just after midnight, and all six of its votes went to Nikki Haley. Four registered Republicans and two independents voted. NPR political correspondent Danielle Kurtzleben was in New Hampshire in the lead up to the vote. Danielle, so aside from that clean sweep in Dixville Notch, how did Haley make her case in New Hampshire? Well, she, when I've seen her in New Hampshire, she's been attacking Trump quite a bit, emphasizing that he's the chaos candidate. And she's had a kind of new line of attack in recent days, saying that the political class is lining up behind Trump, essentially saying that given all of the endorsements he's been getting, he's the establishment candidate. But her other big line of attack is electability. She says that she could more easily defeat Biden than Trump. But really, a fact check here in recent polls, it's not clear really whether she's ahead of Biden right now in head-to-heads. Trump right now also polls about even with Biden, maybe slightly ahead of him. All right, so what's Trump saying? Well, he's first of all trying to say that Haley is in fact not electable. He's also arguing she's not conservative enough, and he's using the fact that New Hampshire independent voters can vote in primaries to make that case. Here he was in a recent speech in the town of Rochester. The radical left Democrats are supporting Nikki for a very simple reason, because they know she's easy to beat. 
But to be totally clear here, Democrats cannot vote in the GOP primary in New Hampshire. Independents and Republicans can. Yeah, and you're there in New Hampshire. So how do Trump supporters there compare to the ones in Iowa? Well, Trump voters in New Hampshire were quite similar to the Trump voters in Iowa, which is to say they're super devoted. A lot of them have been with him for years. They just really didn't even consider other candidates this time around. One other uh, difference is that New Hampshire voters tend to be a bit less socially conservative. It's just a less religious state than Iowa. What about New Hampshire's undeclared voters, Danielle? How much are they in play for Nikki Haley? Uh, Very much. I mean, Haley is definitely appealing to independents and more moderate-leaning voters. Here's Danielle Brown. She saw Haley in the town of Hollis last week. What's the choice, Biden or Trump? I mean, if that were the choice, it's a very difficult choice to make. So I'm I'm praying, I'm hoping that it would be Nikki and Biden. And if that's the case, I would vote for Nikki. Now, to be totally clear here, Haley is not a moderate. She is conservative, but some voters do perceive her as moderate uh, because she simply doesn't use as harsh of rhetoric as Trump has. I mean, really, right now, the meaningful divide in the GOP is not moderate conservative. It's Trump versus anti-Trump. Now, Democrats also have a primary today. Biden is not on the ballot, uh, even though he's the president. So there's a write-in campaign. Uh, Remind us why that's happening. Right. So the Democratic National Committee adopted a primary calendar last year with South Carolina as the first state. But New Hampshire wanted to still be the first in the nation. So they are still holding a primary, but no delegates will be awarded. The victory will be symbolic. But... If any candidate like Marianne Williamson or Minnesota Representative Dean Phillips does well, you can bet they'll talk about it. So, yes, we will see who comes out of that. But there is a write-in campaign to get Biden to win it. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben. Thanks a lot. Thank you. The Israeli military has seen its deadliest single incident so far in its war in Gaza. This morning, it confirmed the deaths of 21 soldiers near Israel's border with the Palestinian enclave. Now, with those 21 deaths, the death count for Israel's current offensive is more than 200 soldiers. Gaza's Ministry of Health says more than 25,000 Palestinians have been killed since the war began, both militants and civilians. This comes at a time when Israeli forces are pushing into a section of Gaza that is crowded with displaced people who are trying to avoid the fighting. Let's bring in NPR's Jeff Brumfield in Tel Aviv. Jeff, 21 soldiers dead. Um, What can you tell us about what happened to them? Well, we don't have all the details yet, but here's what we know right now. This all happened quite close to the Israeli border with Gaza, and there appear to have been two related events. An Israeli tank was struck by a missile, and then nearby two buildings that Israeli soldiers had rigged for demolition collapsed. Now, it's unclear whether the buildings were struck by enemy fire or whether there was an accident with the explosives. Either way, Prime Minister Minister Benjamin Netanyahu called the incident a disaster and is saying there'll be an investigation. Okay. Now, all this comes when uh, Israeli forces are conducting a major offensive in Gaza. How's that going? Yeah, Israeli special forces and other troops are pushing into Khan Yunus, a city in southern Gaza that the military describes as a home to some of Hamas's toughest fighters. But Khan Yunus is also home to many, many tens of thousands of civilians who fled northern Gaza when Israel began its ground offensive. They're living in makeshift tents, which barely protect them from the elements, let alone gunfire. Just minutes ago, I heard from John Kaler, a pediatrician in southern Gaza with the group Med Global. He told me civilians are fleeing again as the Israeli army closes in. The IDF forces are there. The uh, civilians are moving along the roads. Out. It's a mass evacuation. 
Now, there are also reports that facilities operated by the United Nations and the Palestinian Red Crescent were struck overnight. But it's difficult to get details because there's a communications blackout. It's unclear whether the telecom system is being disrupted by Israeli forces or whether fighting has cut the line. Either way, it's very difficult to know what's happening right now. Is there any chance at all for maybe a pause or an end to the fighting? You know, the Israeli military has said in the near term that they actually expect fighting in Khan Yunus to intensify as they try and reach their goal of eradicating Hamas and freeing the hostages taken on October 7th. But this military campaign is facing increasing pressure from within Israel. And a lot of that pressure is coming from the hostages' families. They want another ceasefire that will allow their loved ones to go free. I spoke to a mother of a hostage. Her name was Anit Oel, and she said it's taking too long to get her son home. As a mother, I'm not a politician. For me, for a mother, every day is too much time. And other families are starting to apply real pressure to the government. They've set up protest camps outside Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's homes in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. And yesterday, they stormed the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, demanding action. Now, partially in response to this pressure, the Israeli government has reportedly floated a deal that would see hostages released in exchange for a prolonged ceasefire. But NPR hasn't been able to confirm that deal is on the table. And even if it is, it remains to be seen whether Hamas would accept it. That's NPR's Jeff Brumfield in Tel Aviv. Jeff, thanks. Thank you. Jury selection is scheduled to begin today in a Michigan case that could set a precedent over whether a parent can be held criminally responsible for the actions of their child. About two years ago, a student at Oxford High School in Michigan opened fire. Here are some numbers that define this incident. The student was 15 years old. He killed four fellow students. He wounded six other students and one teacher. The teenager was charged, and so were his parents, with four counts each of involuntary manslaughter. WDET's Quinn Kleinfelter has been following the case. Quinn, the shooter in this case, pleaded guilty. He was sentenced uh, recently to life without parole. So why did prosecutors charge his parents as well? Well, the parents are Jennifer and James Crumbly, and they're being tried separately. Jennifer's trial is first. But they both face, as you mentioned, charges of involuntary manslaughter. In essence, prosecutors say the Crumblies could have stopped the massacre if they had taken certain steps a reasonable person would have done. Uh, The prosecution alleges the Crumblies were grossly negligent by ignoring their son's pleas for mental health counseling and instead buying him a handgun as an early Christmas present. The Crumblies also refused to take their son home from Oxford High the day of the murders, even after school officials said they found drawings he'd made of a person shot by the same kind of gun they'd gifted him, with phrases like, help me, and blood everywhere. The prosecution says the Crumblies did not even mention their son might have access to a gun, let alone request that the school check to see if he had it with them. All right, so the Crumblies are being accused of a lot. Uh, how are they responding? Defense attorneys argue the Crumblies' son pulled the trigger, not the parents. And the Crumblies had no way of knowing that he planned a mass shooting. And they say evidence that their son wanted mental help comes from text messages to his friend, not something that the parents would have seen. But isn't one of the key arguments from prosecutors is that access, access to the weapon used during the shooting, it's all about that. Yeah, the prosecution claims the Crumblies did not adequately secure the gun, so their son could not gain access to it. But when the son, Ethan Crumbly, pleaded guilty to the killings in 2022, prosecutors specifically questioned him about that. Is it true on November the 30th, 2021, when you obtained the firearm, it was not kept in a locked container or a safe? Yes, it was not locked. 
Crumbly may not make that assertion publicly again. Uh, however, his court-appointed attorneys appealed his life without parole sentence and advised him not to testify in either of his parents' trials. Now, we're hearing from legal experts to say this case could actually set a national precedent in what way? Well, typically parents are not charged. Uh, this case, however, involves a mass school shooting and severe charges of involuntary manslaughter. We did see another instance of a parent being charged in Illinois, where last year a father pleaded guilty to misdemeanor charges after his son killed people during a 4th of July parade. That case revolved around how the son obtained a license for a gun, not the kind of involuntary manslaughter charges made against the Crumbleys. One other thing, Quinn, the Crumbly parents, they're being tried separately. Why separately? Because the couple requested it. They had presented a united front until recently, and they waited several days initially before turning themselves into the authorities. Now their attorneys argue in court filings that new evidence has come to light that would pit one parent against the other, and if either is convicted, they could face a maximum of 15 years in prison. That's Quinn Kleinfelter from WDET in Detroit. Quinn, thank you. You're welcome. And that's Up First for Tuesday, January 23rd. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Today's Up First was edited by Megan Pratz, Jerry Holmes, Cheryl Corley, and Olivia Hampton. It was produced by Ziad Butch, Ben Abrams, and Katie Klein. We get engineering support from Stacey Abbott, and our technical director is Zach Coleman. Join us tomorrow. And don't forget, NPR brings you stories from across the country thanks to NPR station reporters in your community. And you can help keep that network strong by visiting donate.npr.org slash upfirst. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. With NPR Plus, there's more to hear, like extended interviews with some of the experts we talk to at Planet Money and The Indicator. It's a mistake for economists to only think about economic efficiency when considering policies because you'll actually wind up with a worse outcome. And with NPR Plus, you help keep NPR going. Learn more at plus.npr.org. Want to hear this podcast without sponsor breaks? Amazon Prime members can listen to Up First sponsor-free through Amazon Music. Or you can also support NPR's vital journalism and get Up First Plus at plus.npr.org. That's plus.npr.org.